John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we're doing something special. We want to share with you some of our favorite shorts that have been available exclusively only on Patreon. Yeah, and we're going to do it theme-based. That's something that we talked about, Steve and I, over email to kind of figure out which shorts we wanted to pick out to talk about here or to present to you all. And we thought, hey, well, let's figure out a theme here. And sure enough, a lot of these shorts fell into the theme and worked out so well for us, Steve. And what it is is... It's all about sort of the craft that John and I work with every single day. We had so many questions that were about filmmaking, about podcasting, about how we do what we do. And here are some of the shorts we're sharing with you. The first one is I needed help on my interview skills. And the best person for me to talk to was my partner, John Roca. So I interviewed John <laughs> Roca on how to interview. Yeah. And for, on my side, I've never been on a feature film set with Steve Morris. I've done uh, videos with him. I've, I've, I've been very lucky to be an actor in some of his work, but never a feature film. So you guys asked, what are some filmmaking tips with Uncle Steve? And that was a lot of fun to kind of get to hear Steve's approach to filmmaking, Steve's approach to like making these films and what he experienced. And on the heels of our conversation that we had about the assistants, I think this was a fun short to kind of compare as a companion piece for that discussion as well. And of course, a lot of these short suggestions come from our patrons. Yeah. And we were asked, well, how has the cinephiles improved? And really, what's wrong with it? <laughs> what things do we regret? What things do we change? And believe me, I had a ton to say about what's wrong with our podcast. There's there's no two people who question this podcast more than we do when we're doing it to try to improve it and do it do a better show for you all every week for sure. So that's a great one to listen to. Also, the morality of editing is on here as well, which I think is really great. What what is the job of an editor? How can an editor craft a performance, craft a film? I think it's a great insight into that uh, as well. And one that's much more serious is dealing with the tragic death on the set of a movie recently that Alec Baldwin was filming. Yeah. We discuss what are safety procedures on sets, how do we deal with them, and what should we do in the future. So, so these are five different shorts 
that we did throughout the year that all of them in one way or another deal with podcasting, filmmaking, interviewing, and the work that we do. And we would love you to listen to these and we would love you to do something else as well. We would love you to go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles where you can hear a new short every week, our archive of over a hundred shorts, and you can even suggest shorts that we record in the future and even suggest a movie we record on the cinephiles. So without further ado, let's take you to the world of filmmaking and a whole bunch of cinephile shorts. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Cinephile Shorts. My name is Steve Morris here with my partner, as always, Mr. John Roca. Hello, everyone. And I just told John I have an idea for a short, and then I immediately started recording it. <laughs> I have he no idea, no what, idea what it is. is. Oh, but no. here is here is the thing that I thought of. You were very kind enough. You you were kind enough to uh, talk to me about the assistance and about Great White Shark Beyond the oh, Cage yeah. of Fear a couple of days ago. Yeah. And I realized that this is really something you've done a lot, and I have never asked you about, which is that. I wanted to hear about your process for interviewing filmmakers. Oh, wow. Like when you get what, when you, when you know that you're booking a director to come in, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. what, what is it that you do? Like, how do you approach preparing for that? That's a great question. Um, when I first started, I was a basket case, just an absolute basket case because you are so nervous and you want to prove yourself. And remember, I didn't go to school to study for this. I didn't do any right. of that stuff that the normal people do who want to get into this kind of thing. I fell into it ass backwards. So, but I know I can talk to people. I do enjoy having conversations with people. So when I first started, I was trying to craft my interviews. So I would research as much as possible. I'd listen to podcasts with these with these directors. I would read interviews. Like, uh, for example, if people want to go back in time and listen to the episodes that I used to do, the show I used to have with Yuri Lowenthal, uh, cast of characters – and our first one that was on Geek Nation, and Super I Animation, yeah, something? Super Animation Game Time was another was it, it was another one, yeah, yeah. Those, so the we, we, and in fact, we just uh, just had Yuri on uh, John and Wendy explain the world last week. It was great, and we started talking about doing another show together. So it never ends with Yuri and I. I love him to pieces. Yuri's but, great. Yes, very, very, and one of the kindest people on the planet, man. And so when we first started doing it, I would do all Yuri would just show up like Yuri would just show up. And so I, I, cause he's so smart about voiceover. It was never an issue for him. And he knew so many people. So for me, it was more about, okay, what, what have they done? What have they done? And then when I was at Collider and they would start sending me out to do the junkets and the junkets are five minutes, which is even more nerve wracking. I started to slowly figure out that do the basic research but also be yourself. So that was really important for me. Ask the questions initially. Like for like, I was just funny. You bring this up because yesterday I was driving and I was just thinking about the Joe Mantegna interview. And I was like, fuck, I should have asked him this other question that I really wanted to ask him was, was about the character that the the producer, I was going to ask him, you brought such pathos to Gary Green. Do you feel that producers get a bad rap? Mm. And did you, want to maybe convey that you had maybe had a conversation with a producer one time that um, revealed to you that he sleeps around because it fills a hole in himself or he knows that he can never fill this hole. And so he's constantly seeking attention and affection. And he understands this is an exchange um, that he's, he's knowingly taking part of, but people couldn't possibly understand. Do you know, did you meet people like that? Is that who you based Gary Green on? So, 
I, I remember thinking to myself, fuck, I guess I got lost in the name, didn't ask the question. And it was a lot of people. So I'm always thinking, right? And so when I'm when I've got someone I'm coming up with, the first thing is complete and utter nervousness. Right. Then research. Then after I do the research, I break through and go, he's a human being or she's a human being. I'm a human being. Let's let me write about five to six questions that I really want to ask. And then their responses will lead me to other things. And I trust that I'm a good conversationalist and I make people feel comfortable that their answers will naturally spark my curiosity and want to go down a certain road. And I can find my way back to my, I have enough confidence now after the years of doing it that I can find my way back to the questions I wanted to ask anyway. So that's basically how I prepare and I trust that I'll be able to think on my feet in certain moments. I mean, a couple of times I've been caught out, but not any time, not anywhere uh, where it's been like derailing the interview. So it, it, it's funny if you had asked me to uh, give my assessment on how John Roca does those interviews. That's pretty much what I would have said. Mm. Like that's because, and I think, cause you're really good at it. And I think the key, uh, you, like I was thinking about, I heard uh, Larry King interviewed and Larry King's Hello. like, on, and I used to live, I love Larry King. I Larry listen King's to him the all the best, time. Dude. And, and he's like on one poll, which is that he doesn't prepare anything. He hasn't yeah. read the book. He doesn't read the movie. He doesn't, <sighs> he just is himself and asks whatever he's curious about. Right. And obviously he's one of the great interviewers. And then there's other interviewers and, and Mark Maron yes. prepares somewhat. I think you're more in like his yeah. camp, yeah. He which is, is very much he, my influence. He prepares, yeah. but the, what's good about a Mark Maron interview is it's the conversation. Mm-hmm. Is that what I and what I don't like is the basic junket interview, which yeah. is everybody asks the same fucking question, right. and the actor, or director, or whoever they give the same canned answer, right. you know. And and part of it is because it's so short, like they only have a couple of minutes to do it, right? And, and, and but that's so uninteresting. Whereas for Mark Maron, it's personal, yeah, you know. Or, or then you have someone like Terry Gross, who's an incredible interviewer. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. also very prepared, but what what's really driving her is her curiosity yes she's really really curious and the thing uh, that i've just been thinking a lot about which i think you do so well is your conversation is going to be unique because you're unique Mm -hmm. like if you're not bringing you to it then it's going to be like all the other interviews that's that's the thing i had to learn you know because um you see other people do the junket interviews or do the other interviews and they're very clear about steering and and i think this is what makes me a terrible journalist because I'm not about trying to get the story or the clickable clickbait headline or trying like I'm about, I want to get to know you because I want to stand in for the audience. I want the people listening to feel like they are in the room with us sitting next to me and, and in a way maybe channeling or maybe putting themselves like channeling themselves through me and experiencing the interview as if they're the ones asking the question. That's kind of my approach. And that has, you know, at times fucked me over because, you know, like, um, like a, a collider a couple of times I got shit because I was like, why didn't you ask him about Marvel? Or, and I'm like, I didn't want to fucking talk about Marvel. These people don't have nothing to do with it. But like, you've got to ask it so we can use it as a headline. And it used to drive me crazy because that's not my style. And yeah. there are other people that's, whose style it is. And I've seen those people get absolutely embarrassed online by those in, interviewees who know that they're being asked this question to be used as a headline by that right. 
outlet or that newspaper or, or magazine or whatever. And um, I never want to be one of those people that got used as a kind of thing to, as a, uh, what do you call it? as, a, as a, a cautionary tale for what not to do. You know, like my former, one of my former bosses, Steve Weintraub, everyone shares that thing where he said, so I need to ask who shot first, Greedo or Han? And, and, and Harrison Ford goes, I don't give a shit, you know? And <laughs> it's just like, I don't want to have an interview like that with somebody. I want to actually get to know them. Um, and that's worked to my benefit, to be honest with you. I mean, when I did the Rambo last blood junket, um, with Stallone, which dude, that's my hero. My knees yeah. were knocking and I, and, and Eastwood too, when I interviewed him for Richard no, I, Jewell. You, there, there are three of yours I think of. There's the Rock, Eastwood, and the Stallone interview. Yeah. Those seems like the three where you really put yourself out there and it really worked. Yeah, yeah. And it was scary. I mean, the Stallone one, I, I really was – I wanted to tell him something and I didn't know if I'd stumble over it and I didn't know if I'd say it correctly. And, I, and it came out of my mouth correctly. I couldn't believe it came out of my mouth correctly. And he responded so positively to it when I told him about how like – the approach to Rambo, there's a deeper approach here that people don't seem to appreciate when it comes to this character. And he really was he he was so moved by that that after it was over, he told his publicist to come get me and and said, I'm gonna give him a second interview. I want him to and he, I was one of five journalists that or reporters that day, or whatever you want to call us, who he kept to interview him again with the two female actresses mm. in the movie. And I, I felt such an honor in that. And then with Eastwood. He stood – I mean he just was so great and he went on these tangents and tirades and – or um, tangents rather. And everyone was like, oh, you got to keep him off the tirades. And I'm like, I, you do that. I'm enjoying this because I love that he's going in all these different places and it's so interesting. And so I just find people fascinating and especially ones who have accomplished stuff. So for me, I become more like let's let's just have a conversation. Let's see where it goes and if we hit the big thing, it'll be there. And if you want to talk about it, you'll bring it up. But if we don't have to, then we won't. You know, like I just had an interview with Richard Richard E. Grant. Now, talk mm. about nerve wracking. And this is right after Loki. Right. And this is a guy I've been watching. Like we, Steve, you and I had that exchange. I think it was on Twitter. How to get ahead in advertising. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How to whatever it is uh, that film. That was the one that I first time I saw Richard. So I made sure to bring that up because I'm like, there's, I get to have one personal moment in every interview. I always say that one personal moment and that's what it was to bring that one up. And then we started talking and we started talking about him because he plays a drag queen in this movie coming up. Some, there's something about Jamie or everyone's talking about Jamie, which is really good. You guys need to see it. It's on Amazon Prime. So I asked him, I said, how did you prepare to be this drag queen to play this drag queen? And he said, well, I watched 11 seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race in three weeks. Wow. And I was like, holy shit. I go, so have you, did you do drag? Have you done drag before? And he's like, I've never done it in my entire life. And I never even thought to do it in my entire life. So this challenge was so scary for me to become a drag queen. I said, oh, I go, well, did you come with it up, up with a drag name? And he said his, what his drag name was. And that son of a bitch put me on the spot because he turned it around on me. And right. he goes, well, if you do you like the drag race? I go, yeah, I love RuPaul. We watch my eyes. Okay, what's your drag name, John? And I was like, ah, shit. So I had to come up with it on the spot because I'd never, ever even thought about uh, assigning a drag name to myself. And I, But it was just that kind of back and forth. And then we got to speak about something that happens in the movie where they do a montage. I'm not going to ruin it, but they do a montage of going back in time in the 90s of what it was like for drag mm. queens in the 90s in Britain. 
and they do and they they kind of de-age Richard E. Grant in certain moments and they have another actor play him in other moments. And I said to him, you know, did you feel a connection to that montage when you were being in these scenes? Because you were at that time amongst so many of these actors and people, performers who were drag queens or who were gay or who were, you know, trying to be accepted by a society that outlawed them for a very long time. And he said, yeah, it was something that was really, I had to take very, very seriously. And so being about of a personal moment, a funny moment, and, and then a, a serious moment, I felt very proud about that six minute interview I had with Richard E. Grant. So it's just like those little things you can find when you're doing it. But the nerves are always there. You just sure. got to trust, you know. It, it, it's so funny because, as you know, I am I love to prepare. Preparing mm-hmm. is really important to me. I want to be really prepared. <laughs> but it's all about the moments that feel live. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I, and partially I'm preparing and so that I can feel right. alive in the right. moment, you know, mm-hmm. that I have the, the stuff behind me that I can use. Yeah. But then sometimes you don't have to. And, and the thing that I find so interesting is that I think – we commodify celebrities in a way and we Mm. say, and we say, okay, you are this and you talk about this. Right. And it's a very, very small facet of who they are because it's like, okay, Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. That's what I want to talk about. And that's a tiny part of Robert Downey Jr. And it's the part that people only want to talk to him about. And so he is forced to talk about this thing and maybe he likes Iron Man and maybe he doesn't. And maybe that's not even the best example, but Mm -hmm. like, they're forced to talk about this thing and not talk about all this other stuff. And so yeah. when you can talk about the other stuff, suddenly it goes from being fake to being yeah. live, you know? Yeah. And, and Steve, the, 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 um, the gift with the long form interview right. is you can make them feel comfortable. You can disarm them in a way that they don't anticipate. Right. And, I was able to do that with Gavin Hood, which I might have told the story already, but I was interviewing him for that uh, Official Secrets, which was a um, British film that he directed with Kieran Knightley about a real what happened in Britain when they revealed who was behind, I think it was something to do with Iraq or something like that, or some kind of state secret, and she was a whistleblower. And Mm. it's it's it's, it's not a great film, but it's a good film, and it's certainly one you can watch. Well, we just were talking, and then 40 minutes into the interview, I bring up Wolverine. Hmm. And he is so relaxed with me that he starts to tell me what actually happened behind the scenes of that production of that film and what he confronted and what he had to overcome. Because he was coming out of being a small director in South Africa or something like that. And so he was doing this film – and the he had no idea what a studio film was going to be like. And he took me step by step through the overwhelming process of it all. And halfway through that particular section, he says, he goes, he goes, I feel like I'm on my therapist's couch. I feel like I'm on my therapist's couch. And I was like, oh, that's well, great. I mean, yeah. When it was over, the Paramount rep came over to me and he goes, you got to cut that. You can't have it in there. I go, what are you fucking talking about? This is like headline material. He is telling me how it was with Hugh Jackman, how it was with the with the uh, uh, head of the studio, the shit he told them, and all of it. He's like, you got to cut it or else, you know, we're going to get in trouble. Like, you can run it, but we'll never interview with you guys again. Whenever. I was like, fuck. But 
I still have those 20 minutes. I saved that audio and I saved the video on my computer and I've saved it on three separate places just in case I ever need it because I am determined to interview him again and talk about that. Um, and so it happened. I, I had Cody Smith McPhee on and I had to cut 10 minutes out of that interview because he told me about his actual contracts for the X-Men. Right. And the Brian Singer situation. He opened up right. about it, but I can't reveal it. I can't talk about it because I respect that's another part of this thing with me is why I'm not as cutthroat with as other people are. And, and I, I, other people succeed in this business being this way when they're given information, they run with it. Fuck who they fuck over, fuck relations, whatever. For me, I'm like, if you've given yourself to me in an interview, I feel so shitty betraying you and using something that I made you feel comfortable about to fuck you over. It just doesn't right. make sense to me. Well, it's the same. I mean, I said uh, I made a real decision when I started doing documentaries and behind mm. the scenes stuff is that my job and it's my job on the cinephiles. It's my job when I made documentaries mm. is I want to make you look the best possible version of you. Right. I want to make you say, even if you didn't say it really, really well, I want to be able to turn the thing you said into the best version of your point yeah. and then let people people assess it based on that. You know, and that that that's the only ethical way to do it, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah, but um, you know, ethics don't pay the bills, from what I understand. But they, they certainly have never paid mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, the other thing, I think, um, Mark Maron was such a revelation for me, mm -hmm. and so important because I was so depressed at that time. Because that's yeah. after all, all the my dad died and couldn't have kids, and the assistants failed, and friends left me, and it was just that time was just the shittiest in my life when I discovered yeah. Mark Maron. And the thing that was amazing about him is he was so vulnerable and so open yeah. and so willing to discuss everything that suddenly you were get that, the, that the people he's interviewing responded in that way. Yeah. And you would hear things that you had just never heard. They just became so human mm -hmm. as opposed to presenting. Here is what I, I'm presenting the star version of myself, you know, yeah. that's yeah. why he's my inspiration. Him and Bill Simmons are my inspiration yeah. for two different reasons. Right. I mean, Marin has an ability to dissect and make his guests feel so comfortable. They reveal things they never revealed before. And Simmons uh, is so ultra prepared that it motivates me when he does interviews. He indulges a little too much in his own personal points of views on things. But it's a great way to kind of look at two different styles and see what style to use for what. Because when I'm doing sports interviews, I don't do the same thing. And right. sports interviews, I do what Simmons does and because that's more about statistics and blah, blah, blah. But if I'm asking someone about their personal life in sports, that's rare. That You yeah. rarely get to do that in sport interviews. You do that more in performance or performer interviews or, or, or artists, film interviews. Yeah. yeah, artists, exactly. But with sports, it's different. So those two are the the yin and the yang for me of, of interviews. And I, th I don't think I'd be in this business if it wasn't for Marin. I'll be honest with you. I mean, there's something about Marin – that opened the door to me of like, not saying that I could be as good as Marin. It was more like I could do that if I got a shot at it. And so luckily I did. And I hope one day to have a show like his, if the cards or the chips fall a certain way, I, I would be very, very happy just interviewing people every day for the rest of my life. Like, honestly, I would have no qualms with that. I, I think you'd be really good at it. <laughs> Thank I, you. I, I think you're a very, very good interviewer. Um, you're very kind, Steve. Um, well, so that was the question I wanted to ask John. Uh, <laughs> it was just as interesting a conversation as I thought that it would be. You love to do this shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have said that you like it. 
I do like to be surprised. It's true. <laughs> I won't always do it, but, <laughs> but, but, and, and well, this is, it's also, you know, well, it'll be interesting. Sometimes you've surprised me and the conversation has uh, gone a really interesting way. That's true. That's um, true. But so that is it for this week's uh, surprising cinephile short for my partner, John Roca. I am Steve Morris, and we will see you next time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Cinephile Short here from the Cinephiles. I am one of your hosts. I am the outlaw, John Roca, joined by my brother in film, Steve Morris. Hello. <laughs> and today we are back to uh, answer another question, thought, or comment from one of you Patreon patrons here of the Patreon on the Cinephiles. This one comes from Jono Schaefer-Cotter. Uh, and they ask, and by the way, fantastic picture of you and I, what I assume is your daughter. It's a really sweet picture. Yeah, he asked, can we further this conversation into Stonebrook slash Siren slash The Assistance? Steve, I'm, I'm assuming he's asking you because I had nothing to do. I had no idea about this. How did you deal with the money issues, logistics and story? Are there any secrets you can share about your process of screenwriting slash filmmaking? Sorry if this is a topic you're tired of talking about. Steve. Well, first of all, Jono, I am never tired of talking about myself. <laughs> Anytime you want to ask. Actually, let me put that a different way. I'm never tired of talking about my work. There you go. I don't ever, <laughs> ever want to talk about myself. That's they're entirely unrelated. Um, Jono, it seems like this is a really big question. Like this is sort of how do you make films and how did you make all of these things? Right. Um, the answer is I- I'll give some answers. So, for instance, Siren, which is the web series I did literally back in 2000 before there was YouTube. Mm. It is, as far as I know, among the first 10 or 15 web series made in the world. As far as I know, as far as I can tell, there's like two or three that were made before me. Um, And that was literally that one was weird because there was a company that wanted to be YouTube before there was anything called YouTube. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was called Evo or Evo or something like that. And they were doing online video. And they, it was, you know, it was the dot-com boom Mm -hmm. and they were, they raised like $20 million or so, some millions of dollars when people were just handing out all this money. (laughs) And I had a buddy who was working for them. Mm -hmm. He was uh, my oldest friend who's a, who's a patron of the cinephiles, David Selig, who is, yeah, yeah, uh, David was working for them and he said, Hey, you should meet these guys. I met them and they loaned me a camera and said, you make something. And I went, Oh, I'll go make this thing siren. That Mm -hmm. was where the idea was. I said, like, well, I got a camera. And literally, you asked where the money came from. It was literally the amount of money it cost for pizza, maybe a couple of like $20 worth of stuff from Home Depot Mm -hmm. um, and sneaking around and breaking every single rule. You know, we shot on the Universal backlot illegally. We shot uh, in Universal Studios, various places illegally. We shot. We did stunts and action sequences. We we my car broke. My car died and it had been the main character's car. And yeah. uh, our friend Steve Jones, who's been on the show, said, well, why don't you destroy it as an episode of Siren? And I went, well, I can't do that. And I called my accountant because I was thinking it was that the car was totaled. And I was like, right. going to donate it to charity. And, yeah. and my accountant said, not only is it can you deduct it as a business expense <laughs> if you destroy it as part of a movie, but it's actually a better tax deduction. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So we towed the car out to the desert. We didn't blow it up. We decided that was too dangerous, but we beat the, (laughs) we ripped the doors out. We broke all the windows. We just beat the crap out of the car as part of a big fight scene. It was awesome. And, (laughs) and, you know, I think by that point we might've spent a thousand dollars total on the, you know, 20 episodes of siren. 
I remember this. I think you showed me this once upon a time of you guys demolishing that car. Wasn't it red? Was it red? Yeah, it was my red Miata. Yeah, red Miata. I remember that. Like there was, you did some slow motion work on that as well. It it was pretty awesome to see. It was, listen, I, it it is still, it's on YouTube. You guys can, you can check it out. It looks really cheap and dated by today's (laughs) standards. But in the year 2000, it was pretty impressive that we were making these films all on our own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Stonebrook was financed by uh, the director, whose name was Byron Thompson, whose idea it was. It was it was very much like the assistants. It was family yeah. and friends, and and you know we were lucky enough to get Seth Green in it, uh, and that that helped a little bit, right? And like the assistants, who went over budget, and you know it's it's funny. I was literally in Paris with Karen's family, and my brother in law called down from the hotel room to tell me that Stonebrook was on TV. Oh wow! Yeah, that was a that was a totally bizarre one. So it's wow. still you know it still plays places, <laughs> um, and I think you know I've talked a lot about the assistants. What what mm-hmm. do you, John? What do you think they're asking? He's asking about screenwriting and filmmaking. What 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 do you think I should? I have well, plenty to say. I mean, yeah, I mean, like he's asking about the logistics. Uh, that's the, that's true. So maybe he's trying to say, let's let's break it down to a real linear approach to right. one specific example. You want to do a scene and you're wondering if you can make it fit in the budgets, budget, what the logistics is, and is it important to the story? So let's say that. Let's say you have a scene. What are the what's the process for you in determining whether you're and it's one of those things that you you're on the fence about. Like let's say you've got to mm. you've got to, you know, you 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 want to see if you can make it work, but you're not sure if you need it in the movie but you feel like you have to shoot it just in case you might need it in the movie. What's your approach to it uh, as you go along? Say you're knee deep in the process of filming. So first of all, the odds are I would, if I, if I'm thinking maybe I don't need this, I probably wouldn't shoot it. Right. You know, because money is so tight. I've never been in a position where I had extra money to (laughs) to make something. Um, (laughs) But what you do, I mean, first of all, the process of making it cheaper is just like a basic part of, filmmaking at my level yeah maybe if you're steven spielberg you're not having that thought but it's like the first draft of the assistance was 125 pages let's say Mm -hmm. and we had to get it down to 108 pages and the at first we had maybe 20 locations is like we had to get it down to 12 locations right and we had this many characters that had speaking parts and we had to get it down to this many characters that's part of the process to get it to a budget a budget level you can handle and then it's very much well how are you going to shoot it like when you get to, I think, pre-production and planning is the biggest weapon that an independent filmmaker has against their budget. Mm. Is that the the tighter you are, the more you've worked out stuff in advance, the more you can shoot in a small space of time. Right. You know, and so like what we would do is, is really figure out every one of our moves ahead of time mm-hmm. so that you know, not only do you have a shot, and this is, I learned in film school, but you have a shot list and you go, okay, I'm going to, and then you make a diagram of like a top down image of the room. And you say, okay, here's where this character is. And they're going to walk over there and I'm going to have a camera here and a camera here. And then you look at it and you go, okay, I have 27 shots. That's what, that's what I want. And you go, okay, how do I get this down to 12 shots? And then you go, what order am I going to move through these shots that is going to take the minimum amount Mm. of time? Because like, if you do things like if you we're shooting our conversation, we're not in the same room right now, but if we were, 
like, I, and I wanted to shoot your side of the conversation while I would light you and there'd be a whole bunch of lights and crap and everyone's backpacks and craft service behind me. Right. And then I go, okay, I want to turn around and shoot me. Well, I have to, that's called turning the room mm-hmm. and that takes 45 minutes. So like, cause I have to move all that crap and then put the lights behind you and set everything right. up and shoot it. Well, you don't want to do that twice. Right. You know, so it's I don't want to yeah, like shoot you. Yeah, exactly. Turn around, shoot me and go, oh shit, I needed to get an insert of John, you're looking to the right or something. I didn't get it. So like, that's all about planning. It's really Mm -hmm. all about thinking through it and, and you're going, and this is why script and schedule and locations is all fluid is you're going, okay, there's no way that I can have this location be somewhere else because Mm -hmm. I don't have time to load everything in a truck and drive somewhere else that day. So I have to shoot it in this location. Right. And then I rewrite the scene to make it make sense while they're in this location rather than the other one. Yeah. See, there you go. All right. Well, one last part of this real quick, Steve, Uh, can you share any secrets? Okay. What's one secret you could share about the process of screenwriting and filmmaking that maybe you haven't touched upon in the past? So um, I will say, I mean, I think I've talked about this on the same files, but you know, this idea of, we talked about the idea of show don't tell or what I would call feel don't know. I think mm-hmm. we talked about those terms. Um, the biggest thing is that every single scene, every moment of everything you write should have conflict. Okay. Absolutely. Even if it's like, you know, you and I are, are you, you think about like the Avengers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even when they're all on the same team or Kirk, Spock and McCoy, perfect examples. Oh yeah. They're always arguing. Mm-hmm. always they're yeah. always disagreeing and the reason is a that was what makes it dramatic if we if if if, if you and i are going on our venture and i go hey i think we should go down here and maybe you know dig in there and have a defensive position and you say yeah that's a great idea let's do it that's a boring scene <laughs> if you say dude we are going to get fucking killed we can't go be on defense we have to go on offense right well now we have an interesting scene right and so and now we have a way that we can get our exposition out like let's say Okay, we're we're fighting some bad guy, and it's like, and and we want the audience to know that the bad guy has these huge, huge cannon or something. Mm -hmm. You know, they have big artillery, and so you go, dude, you can't just dig into an offensive position with the artillery he's got. He's got these kinds of things. We got to be able to move around it. And it's like, and I go, yeah, but you got you got a a twisted ankle, and I got this heavy cat. But you know, we can't move that fast, and so we're arguing. But we're getting the exposition out, yeah. you know, that's yeah. so like in every single scene, everyone should have a different perspective. Always. Wow. Yeah. You know, if, it, if it's the gang going out to a party that night and one person kind of wants to stay home and one person doesn't have that much money and one person is, you know, just decided to quit drinking and one person's out of a bad relationship. Well, all of them are going to have a different perspective on yeah. where we're going to go out tonight. Mm-hmm. So that's the big like every single moment you should have some kind of conflict. Good point. Good yeah. point. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I think that answers the uh, the questions pretty firmly, I would imagine, for uh, John O. I hope that uh, answer. And John O, uh, I'm sure you can DM Steve and ask some more specific questions going forward. But I think that was a lot of information for you to consume and uh, use going forward if you'd like. Uh, thank you so much for sending in your question. And thanks to everybody who sends in questions, thoughts, or comments who are patrons of the Cinephiles. We appreciate it madly. It's always fun to hear your questions and be challenged by them and answer them. And for those of you who did, who missed our 250th episode, it is out there for you to listen to or to watch where we answered a lot of your questions as well, which was a lot of fun for sure. Um, Steve, where can they, uh, where can they follow us and follow you here on our social medias? 
me at SR Morris, you at the Roca says cinephiles, Twitter, cine underscore files, Instagram, the cinephiles podcast, plus cinephiles.net for all your Amazon shopping needs. There you go. All right. We'll take care of yourselves, everybody. We'll talk to you next time with another brand new cinephile short here from the cinephiles. Hello and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Shorts. I am Steve Morris, along with Jonathan Roca. Hello. Oh, good, good, good morrow. Good morrow. <laughs> Has anyone ever called you Jonathan? No, no. I purposely <laughs> made sure that never happens. Um, uh, today's suggestion comes from Ryan Lieb, who says, short idea. Uh, the Cinephile's uh, critical review, the 250 Q&A episode, just gave me a question for a short. Steve, you said there were our a very few episodes of the cinephiles that you don't feel great about not to be too negative, but I'm generally curious which episodes these are. What do you feel was weak about them? Mm. And what did you learn from them? Same question to John. Of course, the show is amazing and I have genuinely enjoyed every episode. Thank you. But analyzing what maybe wasn't so great is a major part of growth and could provide valuable insights for other perspective podcasters. Hope you don't mind the question. Thank you so much for all that you do. I don't mind the question at all. I think mm-hmm. it's a really interesting question. Um, John, do you have do you have episodes that stick out to you as ones that were less good? I don't know. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I know I've always enjoyed To me, I've always enjoyed the conversation. I can't remember that I've ever walked away from one where I wasn't 100 percent. Well, I'll say this jaws. And that was my fault because I kept falling asleep because I had <laughs> such a long fucking day of work and then right into this uh, thing. I think and you only doing- actually fell asleep once. <laughs> oh, well, that you know of, that you caught me do. <laughs> but we had low light in my apartment at the time. And so it we, just didn't. We drank some whiskey. We drank some whiskey. So it didn't really help. And uh, so I was pretty out of it and fell asleep, uh, I think, a couple times in, in my recollection of it. And I felt terrible about it. So um, the, those, I mean, I think there have been a couple of moments like that where it's been tough to kind of like remember that I've got to stay awake a little bit because of the, the, the uh, length of the day for me the work day so those are the only but overall i've enjoyed these conversations very much and i know that when you look back on the old episodes we're a little more kind of all over the place but that's part of growing yeah, and, and, yeah. and i can't put a negative thing on that because we were learning how to do the show as we went along and we learned quick so i i, I totally agree about the early episodes it's mm. funny jaws I, I there was a there was a bunch of issues with jaws and I remember I delayed – we delayed putting it out for a while because yeah, yeah, yeah. I was we scared to cut it. it. Yeah, yeah. Because, because it was one – I didn't feel the conversation had gone that well. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. then it actually is a good episode. Yeah. Like I think people really liked that episode. Mm-hmm. It was just hard uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, so I have lots of thoughts on this. Please, go ahead. <laughs> um, um, so the first thing, I think the weakest part of the cinephiles always is me talking too much. <laughs> nobody nobody okay. wants to nobody's gonna pay money to listen to steve morris describe a movie like you would much rather go see a movie than hear me describe a movie and okay. so any and so there are episodes like comedies where there's a lot mm. of jokes i find really really hard because i don't want to just say every fucking joke <laughs> you know so like when we did the marx brothers with yeah. the duck soup it was just like it was very hard for me to figure out how to do it. I mean, the thing that I know. So that was an episode that I was like, I don't know if this thing is any good. Mm. An- another thing that happens is that 
when I'm editing it, if things are really hard, like it was with Jaws, like it was with Duck Soup, mm. I have really negative feelings about the episode, but that's not what the episode is. It's mm. beca- because maybe I solve the problems in the editing process so that someone listening to the episode doesn't have those negative experiences that I have. Yeah. I think so. But comedies are harder. We do foreign films and I can't cut to dialogue. Yeah. You know, and then it's again me saying a lot of dialogue or me describing like just this person does this and this, but that seems really, really boring to me. And any way I can cut me out, I try to, you know? (laughs) Um, So like, if you, you know, like I was, I think like an episode I was really concerned about, but I do think turned out really well is breathless, which Mm. we just did recently. I felt, because again, it's a foreign film, so I can't cut the dialogue very much. Like, so I was really stressed about that. There's, there's also, um, there's episode because the big the big thing is is that even though we're going to go through the whole movie yeah what makes the cinephiles good is you and i having a good conversation yes agreed when when a moment in the movie helps us to move beyond the movie Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. really talk deeply about something that's when it's totally working and so in an episode where that doesn't happen for a long space of time i also start to get worried like is you know because i stress about like how to make this thing yeah you know as good as it possibly can be in the editing process you know yeah. you don't hear all the shit i cut out no and i, and I cut out more I, i'm more aggressive editing now than i ever have been so mm-hmm. like it used to be like if we recorded a two-hour episode that i would add 10 or 15 minutes of clips and it would be five or 10 minutes shorter so i might have cut out 20 minutes out of a two yeah. hour now i'm cutting out more like 30 minutes or even more yeah just to like like if i get to a point where it's like i didn't really say anything or you didn't really say anything that's really super interesting skip it yeah just take it out jump to the next thing that's interesting i'll tell you one other place and and i will not name episodes or name names there's a couple times we've had uh guests that were a little disappointing i mm. think where where it didn't click yeah. in the way that you and I wanted it to, you know. Yeah, and that's fair, and I think that's going to happen in anything. And I think you know we're we're happy to have the guests, and if they can roll with what we do, great. And if they can't roll with what we do, then so be it, you know. And there's a reason why maybe they're not they don't come back, or we don't ask them back because we don't uh, we don't want to go through that again. Um, yeah. And that's then we have every right to do that as the two hosts and creators of this show. We have a right to. Uh, decide who we want to have on as guests and return guests. If you notice, there are certain people who come back a lot. And the reason is because we really enjoy sitting down with them and we learn a lot from their perspective on a movie that neither one of us had thought about in the quite that way. So it's been great like that. Well, and I think you got to be into doing what we do. Yeah. I mean, we ask a lot, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And there definitely have been people who were surprised, <laughs> like, wait, you're really, how long are we going to talk about this movie? And it's like, yeah. we're going to talk a lo- as long as it takes. Yeah, that's like Perry. Gonna- I think that's been my hesitation with Perry because, like, Jurassic Park, we talked about that for three and a half hours. Yeah. And I was so worried about it, but I may, I try to prepare her ahead of time. I said, we're going to go scene by scene through the movie just so you understand. And she was like, I get it, I get it. And then when it was over, I remember the next day at work, she said to me, she goes, I don't know how you do this and come back to work every every time you do it. Like, I'm exhausted in it yeah. from having talked all about Jurassic Park last night. I know you said we're going to go scene by scene, but I didn't know how, I, I didn't know you really meant scene by scene. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that's the show. Well, that's what's so funny that it's like, I try to tell people you should probably listen to the show mm-hmm. before you come on as a guest. It's, uh, but then it's like, um, and now I just drew a blank on his name. The guy we had for Mississippi Burning, who wrote uh, American yeah. History X. Yes, David. David. Uh, anyway, his yeah. name went out of my head. 
he jumped in so much with both feet. He oh, yeah. was like, as soon as he saw, he's like, no, let's go slower. Let's go. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was so excited to talk over every detail. Yep. And we've had that a bunch of times. Um, the people that really I was nervous wouldn't be into it. And then we're actually like a Warren yeah. only when we did network. Oh, yeah. He was, he was great. He was excited. He was yeah. like, wow, this because because uh, the thing that he said that was so interesting. Of course, we were learning so much from him. Yeah. But yeah. He was like, I'm learning so much doing this. And that's he said. He, he, I remember he said something really interesting, which is the thing that made him love broadcasting was every day he got to go to work and learn stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Well, our our show is a show by cinephiles for cinephiles. Right. And so if you're a guest who is a cinephile, you will love our show. Right. If you're a guest who just likes movies, you will have a tough time being a guest on our show because we're not just going to cover the over – just do overviews and occasionally hit at some scenes. We're doing the whole thing and we're stripping it as much as possible during the time together to get to like new p- approaches, new uh, symbolism, new points of views on it, new interpretations of it. And that's what excites me every time we do the show and especially when we do it with a guest is like what, yeah. what are they going to say? What are they not going to say? What are they going to miss? And I hate when a guest gets kind of like you can sense them getting a little bit uh, either bored or a little bit like right. they're checking their phone. Like I hate that because I almost want to stop the show and go, you can go because like we'll just keep going. And by um, the way, this has happened very rarely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, it's very almost rare. all of our guests have been rock stars and exactly. awesome. Exactly. Um, well, it's funny. Uh, uh, our, our friend Matt Garcia said something to me uh, a couple of years ago that just stuck with me so much is mm. he in a gleeful voice said to me, I figured it out. I'm a 40% person. And I'm like, what, what the fuck does that mean? (laughs) And he said, I'm only for 40% of the population. 40% (laughs) of the population will like me. And for the other 60%, I'm not for them. Yeah. Like I'm, he's like, I'm an acquired taste. And I'm like, yes, you are absolutely right. He is an intense person with a lot of strong opinions. Mm -hmm. I adore him. And I went, Oh, you know what? I'm a kind of a 40% person. (laughs) And to some degree, I think the cinephiles is, it's like, Mm -hmm. this is show, this show isn't for everybody. Right. Like, not everybody wants to listen to, you know, seven mm-hmm. episodes on the Godfather one and two. That's that's both. A lot of people don't want that. Even you, you got know? exhausted by that, which I was really surprised by. You were like, if, if we don't talk about Coppola again for a few months, I'll be happy. And so I know it had worn you out talking well, about it, it just, and going it into the so world much, of the Corleones. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it was just so much research and yeah. so much like, you know, because part of it for me, you know, there's this weird way that it's like, oh, I'm doing an, uh, a term paper for school every week. <laughs> you know, I do a whole bunch of research, figure out how to put the research together. Yeah. And then I'm like, kind of done with that, yeah. you know, right. and now I'm moving on to the next one. So it's just like, you know, I'm thinking about we have a, a recording coming up that I hope works out with mm-hmm. an incredibly special guest yeah. among the most special guests I think we've ever had. Yeah. If we pull this one off. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to like, that's the next one I got to start researching and yeah. studying, you know, yeah. to make sure that we do that right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's always, it's always so much fun. And, you know, you wonder, so, so you ask us like, which are the ones that we don't like? The only reasons that we even focus on any of the ones that we don't like is like, okay, what did we, but I don't know if we've ever had, what do they call those things? The post show, whatever it is. I don't know if we've ever had a really serious kind of sit down. All right. What's working? What's not working. I think we both are always on the same page when we sense it, that it's not the right thing for the show or that we've got to make some adjustments and the show has grown from that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you and I, I can't think of any time that you and I said, I didn't like that thing that you did. Or, no, no, I don't. I can't think of it because the conversation, 
it's even even in the early episodes before we yeah. kind of found the forum, the conversation has always worked. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that we started doing this because you and I like talking about movies mm-hmm. and have fun doing it. That mm-hmm. part is it's the it's 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 the how to do it. It's the structure. That's yeah. why I think I've had way more things editing mm-hmm. where I've been unhappy with the way something went or just, you know, it's like uh, West Side Story, which I think is a really oh, good yeah. episode. That was that was the episode that forced me to change my prep because it was we were because we didn't do it in order. Yeah. And because we didn't do it in order, it took me like two weeks to edit it. Yeah. To like and then at the end, and this is the thing, it was fucking torture yeah. editing, but the episode is good. So because yes. I frequently have I don't I've probably said this to you. We're like putting it out like going. I don't know, John. Yeah. I don't know if this is a good one. And then once it goes out and I'll listen to it a week later or something, I'll go, oh, no, it was fine. It was yeah. fine. I'm always – I never have – I never worry about the show. Like I'm always like the fans love it because they enjoy – because I've said this to Steve before too. And, and uh, Steve has slightly different opinion than I do. I'm like if the personalities are there, people don't give a shit if you're recording it in a can. They just care about, you know, the connection. Like if Mark Marin was doing his show for a couple of weeks using the rope in the can in, yeah. in, in order to get it, nobody would care that much because it's Mark Marin. And I think we've established enough of a rapport with our audience that like even if some stuff kind of goes askew or goes astray, they'll come back the next week and be like, okay, what do you got next? Let me see what you got next. And and for how many episodes we've done. I think we've consistently done an incredible amount of great episodes versus the occasional one that maybe doesn't hundred percent work for people. I agree. And I agree with what you said. I would put it just slightly differently, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is what I would say is that if you don't have that great conversation, yeah, all the other stuff doesn't mean shit. Right. Exactly. Best yeah. mics in the world. Like yes. I, I, you know, all that Both stuff ways. It, it is that, but I do believe like, the enjoyment factor if you can if the words are a little bit clearer or sometimes it's like we you and i say a great thing yeah and and that's awesome if we say a great thing and i can have the music hit right at the perfect moment (laughs) then that great thing gets a little bit better you know what i mean and there's moments you know where where and that's there's some episodes there's some episodes where i go i really want to edit this right i want to get you know like the climactic sequence. like when we did back to the future and yeah. it's the climactic sequence i wanted you to feel as we were talking like you were right in the middle of that moment of the movie and so yeah. i spent a long time shaping it um and does that change the 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 quality or the ideas in our conversation not even a little bit yeah but does it make the episode better I, in my opinion it does you know <laughs> Well, as we talk about this, you know, it occurred to me, I've been mentioning this to you off camera and off. And I think I mentioned it one time on mic with us in one of the shorts. Like I want to create a hundred dollar tier or a five hundred dollar tier for the cinephiles. And maybe that hundred dollar or five hundred dollar tier is the unedited version, unedited versions of the show. And that could be really interesting for purists to hear our thoughts, because there are stuff, as you said, there are tangents that you cut out. Well, maybe the purists want to hear our tangents. And then, I mean, that's a little bit of extra work. But if we get enough people to contribute at that level, it would just be you and me re-listening to these episodes and uh, or to the original and seeing what both of us would like to have removed. And then we put it up for our fans at that level. And only our fans at that level will have access to it. Um, and, can't, and, and maybe they can't even download it, Steve, because that way they can't pass it on to other people. They can only listen to it in a certain place. Right. Uh, this, 
Look, I'm fine with it. There are, there are certainly episodes we would have to listen to it because there are some times where you and I go, I fucking hate that guy. Yeah. Like, you know, we say a thing that it's like, we yes. probably don't That's want what I mean, to go out. But- We'd have to listen to it. But I don't, I mean, in my opinion, it's so funny. Like you've said when we've talked about a movie that was, oh, there was a cut that was four and a half hours. Yeah. And you, and you say, oh, I wish I could see that cut. And I say it would be fucking terrible because there's a reason they cut all that shit out, you know? And so yeah. for me, I go like, yeah, you can listen to the less good version where I, where, like you can listen to me like in every single episode, John has heard me say, um, um, let's see, what happened, what happens next? What I, oh, sorry, I lost my place. It's, it's oh, okay, okay. Here's a, so if you want to listen to like over and over again hearing okay. me say that that's fine if we get 10 people at the 500 dollars level that's five thousand a month i think those 10 people could be allowed listen. to listen to it so absolute whatever of course you can <laughs> it's fine i'm not I, I don't understand why you'd want to but absolutely yeah i think sure. that's a, a hell of an attractive perk for some people who really enjoy <laughs> and want to hear our extra stuff that doesn't make yeah like just a director's cut. That's what we call it. The director's cut level. That's what it is. Okay. $500 level, only 10 slots. Director's cut level. You get the unedited, ver- well, slightly unedited versions <laughs> of our um, of our honest uh, conversations uh, on these shows. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I would think, well, let me, add, let me ask a different question. Yeah. If you were to, if someone was going to pay $100 or $500 mm-hmm. to support the show, what would you want? Like, I'm you good know, question. Yeah, he's asking there. our patrons. Yes. Yeah. What What would you guys want to listen to? Like, what mm-hmm. What would you want? You know, would you want John and I to come to your house and give you a hug? Because you know we would. Depending on where you hug. live. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what. If If you've done a whole year at five hundred dollars a month, I will pay for the airfare. <laughs> depending That's fair. on where you live. Yeah. If you, <laughs> you do know. a whole year, you can come on as a guest. Well, this is the thing. <laughs> well, it would be terrible, though, if we did that and it was just a truly evil person who just <laughs> wanted to spend, spread hatred and lies. Yeah. Then we'd have to cut them off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just suggestions, everybody. See what you think. Yeah. Reach out to us. Right, Steve? Absolutely. And and Ryan, thank you very much for yes, the suggestion. You, I hope we answered your question. I, I You know, it's like, it, I'll tell you what. And if you had 500, at the $500 level... I will go through episode by episode and tell you exactly what was wrong with that episode <laughs> or why I did or did not like it or things that I struggled with. I will told I will do a commentary track <laughs> on I think that would be great for us. For I mean, we could do a a duo commentary track on that episode, or you solo. That would be a lot of fun. I'd be down with that. This is actually something I think we kind of came up before, but maybe now I just thought of a way to do it. It's really egotistical and self-referential, but there's some episodes that we could revisit. Like not do a redo like we did with Die Hard, yeah, yeah, yeah. but go like like for instance, you just watched The Natural yeah. again, which yeah. is a movie that I love that we did it in a very very early in the show. Is like maybe we don't do a whole new version of The Natural, but you and I watch the movie, listen to our old episode, and then talk about what we missed. That's and great. Say, you know, like let's and maybe that can be for the patrons. Here's an additional 25 minutes on the natural or or like Planet of the Apes, a movie that we just barely scratched the surface of the first time we did it. I, you know, I think that's great for the hundred dollar level. I think that's great for the hundred dollar level. And then, as I said, the five hundred dollar level is where you get the unedited ones. Sure. And done and done. I think that's perfect. Um, 
Absolutely. So uh, again, Ryan, thank you. Thank you to all our current patrons and a big, huge thank you for all of you that have decided already yeah. to switch to the $500 <laughs> level. We really do appreciate your support. Ryan, Massive. maybe this is, that's, maybe that's what you want to do. I don't yeah. know. We did just answer your short yeah, question. Ryan. So come on, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, Ryan. We appreciate whatever we you do. do. We, we do. really do. And I think that is it for this week for my partner, John Roque. I am Steve Morris, and we will see you on another Cinephile Short. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Short. I am sitting here, not in the same room, with my partner, Chad <laughs> yeah. Hello, everyone. How are you? What What percentage of recordings have we done in the same room in the last two years? One percent, yeah. which was one recording. Yes. I wonder it's, if anyone has noticed a difference. I don't think there's been any difference. I don't think there has been. I mean, we've occasionally, you know, stepped on each other's words, but we used to do that. We were in, yeah, in person as well. So no, I don't think there's been a difference. You know, it was one of the things that Matt was most worried about with top 10 is like, we're going to use the, we're going to lose the comedy. I'm like, it's all there. You know, people do radio shows all the time. So it's like, it's not a big deal. So I've always felt like it was, there wasn't a, we haven't missed a beat. Yeah, I, I, I haven't worried about it at all. And I'll tell you, in terms of editing, mm-hmm. which is interesting because that's what our short topic is today, right. because we're in different rooms, our audio is totally separate. So <laughs> it lets me do some things. It makes it easier for me because like, sure. like right now, I was talking and you were laughing. Yes. And and if we're in the same room, the laughter would be on my mic as well as your mic. All and then right. I can't edit. like Because sometimes what I do is I'll move your laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll just pick it up and I'll put it slightly later or slightly earlier or even put it somewhere where you didn't actually laugh. I don't do that too much. Are but you doing a laugh track? Are you doing a laugh track? A little laugh? bit. A little, a little bit. bit. It's, laugh it's, track. It, well, it's more like if I instead of like I cut to the audio from the thing and then coming out of someone saying a funny thing, I have you and me laughing, you know, and sometimes they need to be shifted a little left to right to get the timing to be quite right. As long as it isn't offensive. And then he was racist. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, well, and it's so, so funny because this actually, totally unintentionally, is the yeah. perfect segue into this question, which comes from Jono Schaefer Cotter, one of our great supporters. Thank yeah. you, Jono. And he says, uh, he says, what do you think when an editor changes a performance and makes the scene better uh, by extending, shrinking a pause or rearranging reaction shots, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Where's your hypothetical ethical line in the editing room? Do you have one? Ooh. Is it deep fakes? Oh, listen, I've got a terrible hatred, a terrible respect. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've a terrible respect for deep fakes because I think it, it takes an incredible amount of expertise and knowledge to be able to do that. Although I understand that that's a very slippery slope and a murky situation. And for me personally, I know that was one of the reasons we were let go from Collider. Mm. Was uh, Mark got uh, got a hard had a hard on for that George Lucas deep fake that we dropped and got like four million views and oh. he's like, see, I can just get do one of these and uh, and uh, that's better. That's making more views than you guys do on your video stuff. And then you know, as I when they let us go and I found out about that, I was like, everyone's gonna have deep fake technology in like two months. And sure enough, everyone was dropping deep fake stuff on YouTube within weeks. And so it's no surprise at all. But um, so I, I I do respect it because I think it takes an incredible amount of skill. But by the same token, I think it's kind of dangerous because it's it's has slid into a number of areas where you're seeing people's faces, and we've seen these reports where people's faces are on like pornography. They're using these women's faces on that stuff, and you're like, oh my god, like where's the line here? And what can they sue for this stuff? You know, I think this is a perfect example 
of with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, yes. Because I think you're right. It does take a fair amount of expertise. And like with all technology, that expertise is going to get less and less and less. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it used to be, you know, there's a question about editing and the amount of uh, technical knowledge you had to do to edit a film was really high. And now you can do it on your phone and pretty much anyone can do it. And so like the, I think deep fakes are, fucking terrifying to be honest (laughs) like the because how do we know what's true and and like you know seeing a video of someone saying a thing it's like oh well they said that thing well now that you could have a public figure say a thing or you can change yeah you know we have and we have such a divided world right now Mm -hmm. and people living in entirely different realms of truth and now you're going to add fucking deep fakes to it it's terrifying well the most recent example right those nutballs over there at fox news editing joe biden's comments about satchel page as a negro league ball player they edited it for him to say Negro Satchel Page. That's not what he said at all. Yep. And, and it's literally called the Negro Leagues. But, you know, um, they edited it to make it seem as if he was being racist. So people could, on their side of the fence could clutch their pearls and claim and use it against him. Even though the actual audio was dropped, they didn't care because they had already gotten their clicks and their likes and their, they'd gotten their fan base to find a new thing to be upset about. And, um, as if they, you know, as if they care about that. And, uh, I, you know, it just was so frustrating to see that happening. Cause that's, that's the danger of editing when you're manipulating something to, um, further an agenda, you know, to, when you take stuff out. Well, this is the, I mean, this is exactly Jono's question and I think it's a yeah. great question. And I think it's like, do you remember, um, Fahrenheit nine one one, the yes. M- Michael Moore movie? Yeah. So I have, very mixed feelings about Michael Moore. I think he's, I he is very talented. He can be very funny. My politics tend to align yeah. in his direction. Not always a hundred percent. There were so many things in that movie that were so obviously manipulative mm-hmm. in ways that weren't true. So one of the things, the movie opens with uh, George W. Bush and Cheney and all those people getting makeup put on them. Right. And they look like idiots. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny and it's totally not fair because all everybody looks like an idiot when you're having makeup put on you. It says nothing about them, but it frames the entire movie. You know, it's like, uh, and this is the thing uh, that I know from editing, you know, it's like, yeah, I, let's say I move a laugh of yours Mm -hmm. or, and I do this kind of thing all the time. You know, when we were talking with John Grieber and he calls them Franken sentences, like I'll, I'll sometimes take, where I stutter a bunch and don't say something well, and yeah. I'll take the stutters out, and then I'll take like a the, and I'll take the th on the first part of the the, and the e uh, from a different part part of the sentence, and put right. them together, and now yeah. suddenly there's a new sentence. And my goal is to make you and me sound like the best, most articulate versions <laughs> of ourselves possible. Yeah, and so that that we sound, and I would never, you know, like in doing the shark documentaries or whatever. Mm. I could make you say something that you actually don't believe, just oh, like yeah. the Joe Biden thing. Yeah. And, and it's even easier with audio because I don't have to deal with like the problems of editing video. Mm-hmm. So it's like you you have massive amounts of power and you have to use it responsibly. Yeah, you know? it's like it's like and it's not even editing within sometimes it's not even editing within a project. Sometimes it's editing the content that you're actually putting it out by putting yeah. out by that I mean and I had this conversation with somebody recently. Yeah, I was actually I was on the Around the Galaxy podcast as a guest recently uh, yesterday and uh, uh the episode will be out later. But I I was talking about how I get really frustrated when I see these websites or these YouTube channels that trade on hate. Like they trade on yeah. 
hating uh, uh, Kathleen Kennedy or hating on Masters of the Universe Revelation, which a couple of my friends are working on. And to have them, I, I saw one that was like a, a 12 minute breakdown of the first half of the season. And it, when I watched it, I was like, man, is this what the show is? And then I watched the show and I was like, what was this video talking about? The video manipulated certain things to line up chronologically to seem like the um, first half of the season was saying one thing. When if you watched it, that person purposely removed certain things that would debunk what that person was saying within their uh, video. But the video had 600,000 views when I watched. I'm sure it's well over a million, but an hour or two. And I was just like, how can you do that? That's editing in a way that's also manipulative and destructive and willfully uh, uh, lying to people about what the content of a show is. And it was mind-blowing to me to watch that and be like, wow, that people do really trade on this shit, man. Well, what's so funny is the line is so blurry because, like, uh, you know, doing a, a Great White Shark documentary and basically to me, all footage is just their tools, you know, yeah, yeah. like, like, yes, there is a reality here and I wouldn't lie about the reality, mm. but like, let's say when I was editing, I had a guy describing a situation like that, which it happened. He said, you know, and then the shark turned and looked right at me. Mm. Well, I want, but there wasn't a camera on that moment. Right. So now I go and like, well, I want to have some visuals. And so I found a shot that was probably shot two weeks earlier mm. where a shark turned towards the camera. And so now, now this thing really happened, right. but the shark that you're seeing turned towards the camera is not in fact the shark that turned towards him <laughs> right. at that particular moment. And so like in the shark documentary, I literally had thousands of shots that were just like shark moves left to right yeah. shark moves down in frame camera moves towards shark shark far in the distance and that those are the pieces that i put together mm-hmm. and it's so funny i remember when i was editing the first great white shark documentary it's a slight digression but i there's a certain point where you're editing where you just go fucking insane yeah of course and, you know and i had been editing that movie took me nine months to edit Wow. And so I, you know, and it was, I had 200 hours of material and mm-hmm. I just, and I'm all alone. There's no assistant. There's nobody else. And so I'd been staring at shark moves left to right. Shark yeah. moves up in frame. Then we went to see March of the Penguins. <laughs> and I'm in the movie theater and I'm hearing Morgan Freeman's voice. And I swear to God, all I could see was penguin moves to the left penguin turns because i know it's the same thing like when they were saying this penguin was so sad about whatever happened that wasn't that pe- it was just a fucking penguin yeah, like yeah. they just took a shot where the penguin looked down and you have sad music and you have morgan freeman saying that penguin's sad and you go oh my god that penguin's so sad you know and it's not it's just and it's like this is so we're always uh, manipulating the truth yeah you know and and the thing is, is i was just thinking also in terms of the political stuff or even how you juxtapose two news stories yeah yeah. like if you have um like you have okay president biden is uh gets in his limo and goes to air force one that's that's the story and then the next story is on uh the economy's getting better or the next story is homeless crisis in in san francisco right well depending on which story you cut to affects how you feel about joe biden getting out of the limo and getting onto air force one yeah in one story it's like hey he's doing good work the economy's getting better and in another oh look at the country's falling apart and this guy's in a limousine and getting into his fancy plane what an asshole right right you know and literally the the, there's no change in the footage at all it's just how it's framed by what you surround it with yeah you know and you see this on msnbc you see the fox news all the time you see it on whatever you know it's like and what's that that's why like the 
it was funny. I know Jono asked about working with an actor and that's certainly mm. all like what I would say about the work with the actor thing is he's, he asked, how do you feel about editors changing a performance? So that's all we do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that is the, it's not, and it's not, again, I would never make an actor do a performance that was an, antithetical to what they are trying to do. Right. But you are definitely shaping the performance with timing, with reaction shots, mm -hmm. with, you know, which, which take you take, like, you know, on this take, the person really emphasized, you know, where they were a little angrier on this take, they were a little softer Right. on this take. They were moving in a little bit on this take. They were leaning back a little bit and you take those pieces and you put them together and shape a performance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's why the, I, I learned this really early on, and I, ne I never achieved the level, obviously, that the other people have achieved that have been really successful as actors. But I learned early on, like, you're good, you're nice to the director, you're nice to the producer, and if you get a chance to meet the editor or whatever, you're very nice to the editor because you just never know um, how they're going to edit your performance and what take. And every actor says this has been successful. You can't decide what take they use unless nope. you're an executive producer, really. And in the editing room the whole time, you don't get to decide what take they use. So a lot of times an actor shows up to a premiere and uh, takes are being used of their performance that they didn't like. Uh, yeah. And so they're just, uh, you know, unfortunately, they're at the hands of the editor and director. And that's the game, which and you hope you have an editor who's working with that same director. If you work that like Thelma Schoonmaker with, with Scorsese, yeah. she knows what takes to use of De Niro's to, to kind of get the best performance overall for people to appreciate what he's doing in a Scorsese film or DiCaprio or what have you. So you hope that there are the, that you get into the hands of the right editor who understands your best work. You know? Well, and, and it's, you know, that that's a hundred percent true. And I, I've mm -hmm. always recommended, and I don't know if you, how much you've done it, but if you can handle it, an actor going into the editing room and watching the process <sighs> is super useful, but it is really fucking painful. It you know? is exhausting to watch. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is. I mean, I'm doing it now with just in a very, very, very small yeah. way with these YouTube videos. And I'm exhausted sometimes editing, uh, you know, 25 minutes down to nine minutes. I can't imagine. I can't imagine having hours and hours and hours and hours of takes to try to hone a film out of all of that. I used to think you can edit a two-hour movie in two weeks, two or three weeks. And and I had a friend of mine, and this is back when I was stupid yeah. about editing. I had a friend of mine, she was an editor. We worked at the DVD testing place together. Oh, yeah, and yeah. I, I told her that one day as we were like kind of sitting next to each other editing, I was like, uh, or uh, sorry, testing DVDs. And I said to her, I was like, yeah, you, can, you can edit a movie in like three weeks, right? And she goes, you're out of your fucking mind. You have yeah. no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> she started, and she started explaining all the different things you have to do when you're tackling a scene or a section of the movie. And I just was like, Oh my God, I would go insane. I would absolutely go insane. So. It, 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 it is such a painstaking process. Mm. And you'll see, like, you, you'll watch a scene over and over again. Like, the scene isn't working. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Well, and this is, this is what's so, the, the most painful moment. So, you direct a movie and then you do what's called a first assembly. And a first assembly is basically, it's the worst version of your movie that will ever exist in any reality. Yeah. And what, what it usually is, is <laughs> like, let's say you have a director and an editor who's not the same person. Right. So, the director's on the set and they do a take and they say to their script supervisor, take two and take five were the good takes on that. And that'll yeah. go into the notes. And there's a script. And the editor gets the footage and they basically put together every single line that's in the script in the order it's in, in the script, yeah. every scene exactly as it is in the script. And they look at those notes and say, okay, the director said, take three, the director said this take, and they just put it together and you go and watch it 
like and then the direct and this is happening while the director's directing and then the director like finishes his shoot and he goes to you know jamaica and he sits on the beach and smokes a lot of weed and drinks pina coladas and takes a break and then he comes back and he watches his movie yeah and wants to kill himself <laughs> because it is so i can't even begin to tell you how terrible these first assemblies are it's like nothing in my movie works my script is terrible every decision i made as a director is awful and that's when you start to work right you know right and, and there's so much of like and that's why like you well, this scene happening here isn't working, but this character is really interesting. And if I move this scene before that scene, right. then that changes the meaning of this scene. But then this, and this is the thing, then that, let's say your great performance in take six. Well, your great performance in take six doesn't actually make sense right. with the changes I've made in the film. So now I use the performance you really didn't like in take three, but that makes more sense. Right. You know, like it's so, and there's no right answers to any of this. It's all just kind of what you like, you and, know, and, at a certain point. Right. And if the director changes or the executive producer comes in there and goes, yeah, I don't like the vibe of this whole entire section, then you might have to go back in there as an editor and re-edit that entire section yep. according to the notes from the executive or the the um, the producer, executive producer. And you're just like, oh, my God. So all of a sudden you have to go almost disassemble that entire right. take and start all over again with different takes from the different uh, uh, shots that you took in that scene. So just it's it's insane. It's and it's not something you can do like put on a pair of headphones, listen to music, and just kind of mindlessly no. move stuff around. You have to listen to the same things over and over and over again. The same line deliveries, the same scenes. You have to watch the same stuff over and over and over again. It's just there's a certain level of incredible amount of patience you have to have to be a, a damn good editor. Well, it, it, it's funny. I think there's a certain weird mindset that editors have. Yeah. Where and and, and I think part it's part of my the reason that I was able to edit is also part of what makes me able to do what I do on the cinephiles, which is mm. that I'm always somewhat detached. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm never, it's rare that I'm 100% just in the movie, yeah. you know? So if I go to a movie and you and I sit next to each other, you're having way more of an experience oh, yeah. than me, you know? And so, and what that means is, is that I can be sitting back and rewatch the same thing over and over again. And, 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 and try to reset my brain of like, right. okay, I've never seen this before. Watch this again. See how it feels. Right. Um, the, the, it was funny too. The, the, when I used to teach editing, which I fucking hated teaching editing, <laughs> the reason I hated teaching editing was it was just teaching software. You know, so it's just oh. like, okay, go to the file menu, and I pull down and hit import. No, no, don't hit open. Open does something else. And that, and that, you know, and then, and so we get them to open up the footage. It's like, now you're going to bring it into the timeline and you're going to do, and then, so you can right click on this or you can use the tool in the menu bar, or whatever. And then a student would come in late yeah. and I'd have oh. to catch them up because oh. they're to they're totally lost. Yeah. Anyway, one of the, the assignments we do is we had we had a whole bunch of random footage. Mm. We had a, a footage from a scene from Monk that we played with. Oh, and one yeah. of the assignments I did was I was like, okay, turn this scene into something else. Make it a horror movie. Make Monk uh, a serial killer. Make this a comedy. Make mm. it. And, and you would be amazed at a five-shot scene that's like two minutes long yeah. that you could turn it into – you can completely change the tone of it, change the meaning of mm -hmm. every word in the scene just by how you put it together. Well, that a video just like that spawned Cobra Kai. Mm -hmm. That's the madness of that. Exactly. Like, Cobra Kai was spawned by from some YouTuber editing the Cobra, the first Karate Kid, to make it seem as if, as if Daniel was the asshole and Johnny was the victim. And that 
got so many views that it got these people involved in creating a whole series out of it. So yeah, that's certainly a possibility uh, for sure. And and that's kind of the joy of a great editor is being able to. I mean, I saw they turned a Ted Lasso one into a horror. Oh film yeah, I saw that day, one, which was great. So like, I I envy people who are fantastic editors like that. And that's one of the advantages if you're a YouTube person. If you're an editor, you kind of have a leg up on just about everybody else because. People like to watch incredibly well-edited YouTube videos. Uh, as a, the personality needs to be there, of course, or the content needs to be there, but the editing is really, really important. Like uh, when we were going to do Assassination of Jesse James, like I right. went and watched this Roger Deakins hmm. um, edit, incredibly well-edited uh, video from this British YouTuber, and he, he spoke over it, but he never appeared. And it was glorious, the yeah. editing he did and finding the right scenes and moving them into each and giving the transition, blurry transitions in between each. It was, just, it was just genius. And so I was like, this is incredible. I hope I want to learn one day to be able to do that, you know. Uh, it stuff, yeah, I mean, it, and that, of course, I'm sure took that guy a lot of time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's funny. I, it just occurred to me I have a perfect example of this. And I'll ask this as an ethical question. <laughs> so here's a piece of editing I did. And maybe I'll even po- post this scene and you people could look at it. So this is in the second sh- Great White Shark movie I did. Oh, yeah. And it's the the way the shark it's set up is that the shark has a big tag that's called a critter cam. Mm. It's like a camera mounted on the back of its dorsal fin. And it gets stuck on the back of the shark because it's supposed to be on him for a while, film for a while, and then it's supposed to come off and float yeah. to the surface. And it didn't yeah. do it. And so the sequence is of the... Uh, a diver swimming down and cutting the camera off of the back of the shark. Yeah. And that this is the first time that they interacted close with the shark. And this led to them doing dorsal rides where they would ride on the back of the shark. Right. Right. Okay. Here is what I did. I took two different things and put them together. Mm -hmm. One is the first dorsal ride, which actually happened before he cut the thing off the shark. And the other is him cutting the thing off the shark. And Mm -hmm. I took those two stories and I put them together so that sometimes he is describing his first dorsal ride. Sometimes he's describing cutting the thing off the back of the shark. And I made it one sequence. Mm -hmm. And if you examine it really closely, you'll see that he's closer to the surface in one shot and deeper down in another shot. I even have a shot where he's swimming down to uh, the shark. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it, the bubbles coming out of his mouth are also going down because the shot is in reverse. He's actually (laughs) swimming up. And it's, it is, in my opinion, one of my best pieces of editing ever. <laughs> and, it, and everything that he says happened, happened. Right, but it right. didn't happen in the way that I said that it, that I said that it happened. Right. Is that ethical? You know, that is a good question. If it worked for the movie and it doesn't hurt anybody, I think it's fine. Well, That's and this go- it, it goes into sort of like the big T truth and little T truth, you know. Right. It's like in terms of the big T truth, it's fine. Right. It, it is everything that happened, happened in terms of, is this an act of journalism I just did? No, it's not. <laughs> I manipulated the reality. That's fair. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so Jono, right. thank you for uh, your question. It's a fantastic question. Thank you for your support of the show and thank everybody here on Patreon who helps us out. You keep the cinephiles going. Without you, John and I would not be able to afford the internet connection to have this <laughs> conversation right so now. So true, so true. So thank you all very much and we'll see you next time on another Cinephile Short. Hey everyone, it's the outlaw John Roca here with the Cinephile Shorts with my partner, Steve Morris. 
Hello. And, uh, you know, every time we do one of these things, we look forward to seeing what comment, what question, what kind of interesting concept you guys are going to challenge us to talk about on these Cinephile Shorts. We love you for being patrons, and we love you for challenging us. And I think today is no different. This is a little bit more of a recent topic, uh, and this one comes to us from Paul, and it's uh, here's the uh, uh, byline, Onset Accidents, or the subject line, rather, Onset Accidents. I know this is a macabre topic, but it is Halloween season. <laughs> Okay. What recently happened in New Mexico involving Alec Baldwin accidentally shooting crew members, one fatally, with a pop gun prompted me to suggest this subject to you guys. What are your thoughts about the Alec Baldwin incident? Can you please discuss on onset tragedies that you will never forget and the dangers actors and crew members often face on the set? There's Brandon Lee, John Landis's helicopter incident, John Eric Hexum, and many others. Thank you, Paul. I think he meant prop gun, not pop gun. Yeah, prop that's gun my, is probably yeah, that's correct. My guess. Yeah. So obviously this is a really serious topic and yeah. a really tragic one. And, and I just feel so badly for everyone on that. I mean, I just can't imagine the pain those people are going through mm -hmm. after what happened. That's just terrible. Um, I He's asking, you know, how we've reacted to some of these tragedies. I have such a strong memory of the John Eric Hexham one. Oh, yeah. That was the first one because I love that was... Tra travelers or i forget what it was called they're like time travel show yeah that yeah. he was on and i love that show and just the, I, I don't know something so emotional this because you know, this is a guy he's playing around with a gun that's loaded with blanks and he puts it to his head thinking yeah. that a gun loaded with blanks is safe and fires at his temple and kills himself right yeah. in front of the whole crew and that's just uh it just yeah. these are so, stories are so upsetting um obviously the brandon lee one i know mm -hmm. that hit you really hard too oh yeah Absolutely. Uh, uh, and remember the Twilight Zone one that they're referencing, yeah. the Vic Morrow accident. I remember that being Me too. pretty unsettling as well because it was a helicopter accident. Mm -hmm. Supposedly the blade like decapitated him or something from what I understand. And so it's just really – that was one of the first ones that I remember. And then right. the Brandon Lee one is the one that really sticks with you from top to bottom because, I mean, that is just – tragic because of the bruce lee connection and then yep. when you're watching that film that rob cohen did that was so great dragon right. you're, you're you're seeing how he's like sacrificing himself so his kids don't have to deal with this curse and then of course a couple of years after that movie comes out or right or i think a little bit before that movie comes out he 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 dies so yeah. right around that time so it's like oh my god how tragic um and tough and of course bruce lee and the connection with bruce lee is just very powerful um one thing we should say, this yeah. stuff is rare. Yes. I mean, it's, it's right. really, really upsetting. Very it true. sounds like we don't know all the details from what happened on the Alec Baldwin set, mm -hmm. but it sounds like a lot of people fucked up. Yes. Like the, the basic rules, and I'm not an expert on this in any way, but mm -hmm. my understanding is the basic rules is you always assume all guns are loaded. Mm -hmm. And that unless you visually check yourself... And open it up and look in the chamber. Unless you do that, you assume it's loaded. And both the AD and it sounds like Alec Baldwin did not do that. Mm -hmm. And whether or not what the, the armorer, I think, was a new arm, relatively new to be yes. a head lead armorer. Yes. Um, and so it, 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 there was mistakes all along. Yeah. Um, but these things are rare. But I will also say, and I mean this, John, I'm going to say something insulting. But uh oh, okay. you, can't you can't trust actors. <laughs> That's true. You can't. We're too focused on, on getting the yeah. lines right, on hitting our marks, uh, on all our other shit, our, our fight with our agent, our frustration of being on the set because we wanted something bigger or something else. And we're always preoccupied with a million other things 
And so we rely, as a speaking as an actor, we rely on the crew and the production people to give us the stuff that they're giving us and that it's been checked and that it's ready to go so that we don't have to do that extra check and add another thing to our preparation already. So I agree with you. Uh, you shouldn't trust actors, uh, and but we put a lot of trust in the production. Yeah. Well, and I've seen so many, I mean, just have teaching with student films and student filmmakers. Like here's yeah. this one. This one was one I heard about, but wasn't involved with. But there's a student film that's shooting in the garage of like a big office building. And they are doing a scene with two like automatic weapons. Like, yeah. I don't know, you know, two Uzis or something. And they're, they're prop guns. They don't fire. Um, and the they're loading in, you know, so they're loading all the equipment in, loading the lights in, and they put the box with the weapons down yeah. in the garage. And the crew is doing other stuff, and the actors come over and open the weapons and open the box and go, oh, man, this is so cool. Yeah. And they grab them, and, and they go outside. Mm -hmm. So two actors running around playing bad guy with automatic weapons on a crowded street in Los Angeles. Yeah. The yeah. police were called. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. But, like, right. <laughs> that they easily could have gotten people killed. Easily. Yeah. You know, and I've seen um, like again on student films, like an act. Students were always supposed to clear any stunts, and they weren't allowed to do stunts. And there was always a process because things were dangerous. Yeah. It's like I there was an, a, a student filmmaker who had someone choking, an actor choking another actor Oof. underwater in the ocean. Yeah, you know, and, it, and 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 we, you know, the whole school comes down on the guy. He's like, well, nobody got hurt, and it's like, yeah, nobody got hurt, but someone could have gotten hurt. Yeah. This is why, like, this is why there needs to be. Really, really specific processes that are taken really seriously. And by yeah. the way, when I say no one should trust, you shouldn't trust actors like someone like Tom Cruise, who's done this for right. decades. I mean, I he knows he's got to know all the procedures backwards and forwards. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Um, what do you think about there's a lot of talk now about there just shouldn't be any blanks used on a set? I don't know. I I, I, I loved the, I loved the retort to that. That was it's so funny how all of a sudden we want to ban guns on set, but you know twenty five kids are killed at Sandy Hook and nobody wants to ban guns from being that's distributed. A good point. And I was like, fuck. When I saw that, I was like, yeah, fuck. That's so stupid. I absolutely agree with that. That is so ridiculous to all of a sudden be banning guns on set. This was one an independent production. B it was uh, you know one of those smaller films that doesn't have a big budget. The union workers had walked off the set that yeah. morning in protest because there was no budget to pay them, even though they'd agreed to work on this thing. Uh, and I think Baldwin does bear a certain amount of responsibility here as the name actor, as yep. the guy with the experience. And I think he is one of the executive producers on the movie. So a lot of this falls on his shoulders that he should not have gone forward with unapproved non-union talent, although everything else was union, the props, all that was union approved. The non-union people coming in that day to shoot a shooting scene, yeah. that was the mistake. So I don't think we need to go to the extreme of like, oh, we can't have blanks on set. We can't have, that's ridiculous. That you know, as you said, Steve, there are a million examples of it going just fine and multiple per movie where it right. goes just fine. Oh, yeah. And this is just one of those incidents where the people were careless. So and non-union people were careless. And as you brought up earlier, this is a 24-year-old armor. And they and, and I'm gonna tell you, this is a crazy little world because People went back and found a podcast that she did a year ago where she said she was very insecure about being the, a head armor, wasn't sure if she was uh -huh. ready. Even though her dad is like a legendary armor, she was young to take this yeah. on. And so she said in, a, in an interview when she did her first set, 
or did her first time as a head armor last year that she was very insecure about doing it because she wasn't sure if she could handle it. If she was ready to handle it wow. at 24 years old. Well, it, it, I, I totally agree with you. And this is the thing is like, we're talking about John Eric Hexum. That's in the eighties. And he did it to himself. He did it to himself. Brandon Lee in the nineties. Right. And now it's 2021. Yeah, it's yeah. that, and we have had thousands of film shoot shooting guns. Oh yeah. It's like, you know, and there are so many more dangerous things on movie sets. I think the oh, yeah. biggest one is lack of sleep. Mm-hmm. Is that you got people driving big trucks and operating heavy equipment who haven't slept? You know, that's, you know, it's way more important, like what just happened with the IOTC strike yeah. about getting good turnaround time. So you're not actually, you know, rushing, driving an hour and a half to get home, try to get five or six hours of sleep before yeah. you drive an hour and a half back to go back to work. You yeah. know, like that's, that's, that's way more dangerous than this. I mean, and, yeah. and I, so I would say two things. One is it's, People being stupid and not knowing how to handle the stuff. Yeah. And it's cheap fucking producers yes. who don't take the proper safety precautions or take risks with other people's lives. Yep. You know, that's that's the shame of it sometimes because you anybody can become a producer in Hollywood. You just got to have enough money or trick people into giving you enough money to be a producer in Hollywood. Yes. There's literally no requirements yeah. to be a producer at all. Zero. Zero. Yeah. And so as long as you can fund the film or it, it pretend like you can fund the film, you get to make the move. And that's the sad truth of it. And yeah, careless situation like this, I, I think these people should be sued to the nth degree so that it shows other producers that this is what could happen to you when you're careless. You can lose everything financially, yeah. end up in the fucking poorhouse because of your carelessness in a moment, in a shooting scene. Uh, and Steve's right. Like, if we want to start doing this all day, banning blanks or banning guns, then we got to start looking at stunts as well. Oh, yeah. How many stunt men have and women have died or or exploded or or whatever in, in numerous injured, ways, yeah. seriously injured in numerous ways from the carelessness or the ego or the uh, not paying attention to the situation or or not having the full information of what was going on. So, are you going to ban stunts? Like it's just it's it just can't work that way. And I think this is just an unfortunate tragedy. We should treat it as such and take the lessons from it. But it, I don't think it should be calling for a wholesale change in the industry at all. Well, and I, I think you know, the, the thing is, is this is what happens when you respond emotionally. Like emotionally, right, this right, makes right, me right. sick to my stomach. Yeah. But if you look at and if you look at just all of filmmaking, you go, well, where are the biggest danger points? This mm-hmm. isn't it. You know, right, right. There are other things that are way more dangerous. And there's just so many other forms of abuse in Hollywood <laughs> yeah. that are not like physically dangerous, but emotionally horrible. Yeah. You know, and you got to um, ask yourself, Steve, if this had been a PA, would we be going crazy like the way like people are right now? No, it's because this was a young cinematographer, 42 years old, that had been building her resume. A lot yeah. of people knew her and, and she was growing into her uh, prime as a cinematographer. So it's the shame of losing a, a cinematographer that's female, which is very rare, and then be a young woman at 42 years old. Yeah. With the husband. So it's like the, the the tragedy of it all. But if he had shot a PA on accident, I really don't think people would go be going this crazy. Uh, I don't you're think probably so. right. That makes yeah. me very sad, but you're probably right. Yeah. It's also I really uh, Alec Baldwin's so talented. Mm-hmm. He's such a good actor. He's so fucking funny. I yeah. he, I've listened to his uh podcast. Here's the yeah. thing. He's a great interviewer. Yes, he like is. he's and he's, he's intelligent led, as hell. Talent, absolutely and he's led a very troubled life mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and i just i i i i, I have two emotions simultaneously yeah. one is 
whatever he is responsible for, he needs to be penalized yes. for what that is, even if that might mean going to jail, you know, uh, you know, for uh, manslaughter. Yeah. Um, and I feel really, really bad for the guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, because it I, wasn't his intention to kill. Of anybody. course. I, I just picture yeah. that moment yeah. of you're in the middle of rehearsal and then you realize you've just killed someone. And apparently there's video or uh, pictures of him reacting afterwards off the set and on the phone and seeing him crying or seeing him just bent over or whatever. And I'm like, I don't want to watch any of that, no, nor do I want no. to look at any pictures of that. Cause that's just heartbreaking. Cause you're right. He has no intent. I mean, whatever his drama is, he had no intention to kill anybody in that situation. Not. And it's apparently, an and apparently the director is really good friends with him and he could have almost killed the director as well. So uh, that's just the, it's the double whammy of it all for sure. And it isn't. And the, the other part of this, that's really kind of on the lower level, Steve is, you know, he hasn't had the best reputation towards women. So it's like you add this, that he's killed a young woman in, in, in her prime coming up as a cinematographer. It's, it's a tough situation on so many levels, an unfortunate thing. And seeing people on the right run with it has been fucking Well, that's what's, that's what's fucking ridiculous. It's yeah. like, look, you can, hate you. Alec, you can hate Alec Baldwin, but right. this is an accident. This was a horrible, terrible tragedy. This right, wasn't right. – this has nothing to do with politics. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, the right Candace Owens and all them just jumping on it with glee. Yeah. Fucking yeah. ridiculous. Anyway. All right. Well, there you go. Thank you uh, to Paul for sending that in. Appreciate it. And thank you very much for being a patron. And thanks to everybody who is a patron of the Cinephiles. We appreciate it madly. We love and uh, just honor you all so much. We're building this show piece by piece, step by step. And it's really in a great place now. And we're looking to build even more. And you all are an essential part of it. So please make sure you encourage other people to come to become fans of the show and possibly they'll become patrons of the show as well. And keep us going into the next millennium for sure. Well, millennium next decade for well, sure. Easy. Easy. Oh <laughs> I can't do this for easy. a thousand years. <laughs> I meant to say decades. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, for Steve Morris, I am the outlaw John Roca. We'll talk to you all next time for another cinephile shorts. Yeah.